0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway.
2: I did not have sexual relations with that woman
3: maybe he just did all of these things his last six months because he was trying to keep me quiet during the election
0: you know i'm automatically attracted to beautiful i just start kissing them hey when you're a star they let you do it i sat
3: down and introduced himself as donald trump all of a sudden he was all over me kissing and groping and groping and kissing we
0: drank beer i liked beer I still like beer
2: i am here today not because i want to be i am terrified I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school.
0: It is all completely political. It's a complete smear.
2: You know, slowly, quickly, but it's killing us. It is taking everything out of ourselves just to function in this world and to try to make it a better place.
0: I am not a racist. I am not insensitive to
3: black. And I find the throwing around of the word racist Reprehensible,
1: white nationalist, white supremacist, western civilization, how did that language become offensive? That photo and the racist and offensive attitudes it represents does not reflect that person I am today or the way that I have conducted myself as a soldier, a doctor, and a public servant. So, when do we give politicians and public figures the benefit of the doubt? When do we forgive them for their past transgressions? And when do we force them to step down? These are the questions we're asking today, and they are the questions the people of Virginia are wrestling with right now. As you probably know, the governor of the state, Ralph Northam, has been embroiled in a scandal since earlier this month, when photos of his medical school yearbook surfaced, showing one person in blackface, another in a Ku Klux Klan robe. There were calls for him to resign and for Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, a black politician who was next in line, to take over. But now Fairfax is involved in his own scandal. On February 6th, Vanessa Tyson released a statement accusing the Lieutenant Governor of sexual assault. Her allegation dates back to the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston. Soon after that, another woman, Meredith Watson, also accused Fairfax of sexual assault. Fairfax has denied any wrongdoing and refuses calls to step down. He has called for an FBI investigation into the allegations. Now, the third in line for governor, should both Northam and Fairfax be forced out? Well, that's Attorney General Mark Herring, who, after the Northam and Fairfax revelations, admitted that he wore blackface at a college party in the 1980s. But the question many of us have been asking is, how did we get here in the first place? Well, it might be because the standards we hold politicians to have changed rather quickly, and we're now paying more attention to behaviors that maybe we used to ignore. Here's Vanessa Tyson, earlier this week, speaking at Stanford about sexual assault.
2: There are many people who would like to glance away from this, and maybe they would do it subconsciously, maybe they do it consciously, maybe it's just too much. And I I understand it's it's one of the ugliest aspects of of, of humanity, but what And who we glance away from says so much about our priorities as a society.
1: What does it mean to not glance away? How do we decide when and how to hold politicians accountable? Here to help us work through these questions are Jamel Bowie, opinion columnist for The New York Times, and Joan Walsh, the national affairs correspondent for The Nation.
3: At first especially when uh, Governor Northam admitted that it was him or one of those men, perhaps the blackface person or the Klansman, which might be worse, not sure. It seemed obvious that he had to go. And also, it seemed like a kind of restorative justice that an African-American Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax would step up. It seemed, you know, I don't want to say anything's easy and ending someone's political career requires a lot of deliberation and a a certain sense of fairness. But I pretty quickly got there. And then the allegations about lieutenant governor began to come out. And it became more complicated. I'm not sure it should be. But I think for most people watching this unfold, it
0: suddenly became
3: more of a crisis.
1: Jamel, what about you as you watch this unfold?
0: I guess um, watching this unfold, especially as a Virginian living in Virginia, I sort of find the entire situation a little funny. The past 10 years, governorship has not been scandal-free in Virginia. Bob McDonnell, the Republican governor before Governor Terry McAuliffe, quite famously had a, a corruption scandal and I was sort of accustomed to, oh, a big gubernatorial scandal involving the governor. But then to see this sort of like metastasize to include all three statewide elected officials, of course, the allegations against Justin Fairfax are, are of a different kind, a different category. But to watch this all grow and, and metastasize and sort of put the Virginia Democratic Party in a very unusual situation of essentially having to decide whether it's going to risk handing over state power to the GOP, um, not even two years after winning this big statewide victory. It's just Kafkaesque and thus uh, a little funny to me.
1: Well, and that is part of the Kafkaesque piece of this, Jamel, that it's Democrats who were asking for the governor to step down. This wasn't Republicans who were sounding the first alarms on this. These were Democrats willing to say, yes, we have these standards. We're going to hold true to them.
0: Right. And I think there's been some conversation um, here and there about whether or not the standards Democrats have put forward are too strict, but I don't think that they are. I think it's, it's very recent in American history and certainly in American political history that there's been anything like a zero-tolerance policy for racism in either party. And I think an attempt to make that work is quite admirable. The great question, though, in in this case is what happens when that policy begins to conflict with sort of larger partisan goals and puts you in danger of essentially obliterating the gains you've made.
1: Joan, I want to turn to the Justin Fairfax situation. And I was uh, really taken by Um, Something you wrote about, you said that you talked to three black women who asked you why feminists, white feminists seem to be holding back on Justin Fairfax when they were so quick to believe Dr. Ford of the uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Can you help us unpack all of that?
3: Sure. I mean, I I think, you know, uh, the New York Times recently had a story that had a a slightly different take. Obviously, the black community is not monolithic. Black women are not monolithic. At a certain point early on, there was a, a kind of protectiveness of Justin Fairfax. And there remains to some extent... Some of that. And I think certainly as a white feminist, I was concerned and I was certainly not going to be one of the first people to say, oh, you know, he he has to go. But then there is, you know, there's a strong and outspoken group of black women. There's a, a delegate. That I spoke to a really wonderful, impressive, uh, progressive woman who was elected in 2017, Jennifer Carroll Foy. She posed the question to me directly. She was concerned that there was a double standard and that women were pausing. So it's very, very fraught. Jamil, how do
1: you see this? Did you see that there was a double standard or that uh, people were trying to prioritize in their mind which of these things they needed to be more outraged or they needed to put more judgment onto?
0: I do think there's an element of that, especially as things began to kind of come down in a cascade. I think that, to the extent that I sense a sort of um, consensus here, it's that Mark Herring's uh, admitted use of blackface in a costume um, is probably the least, you know, offensive, least bad, and most forgivable of the offenses, and that you I've noticed. And I'm sure you both have noticed that there really haven't been these strong calls for Herring to resign. And I think it both reflects the partisan situation, not wanting to relinquish control of all three statewide offices, but also a sense that of these things, that one at least uh, is forgivable. And Herring seems to have taken steps to sort of appeal to and ask forgiveness from uh, black lawmakers and black voters. So there's that. (laughs) Looking at the Justin Fairfax situation. I'm inclined to say that he should step down. He should resign. Um, Serious accusations. But I sense um, among Virginia Democrats a real honest concern about the, I hate the word, but the optics of all of this, which is that at the end, whenever this ends, it may be the case that the two lawmakers who survive are the two white men and the one who has to go is the young black man. And even if Fairfax's offense or alleged offense justifies his resignation, it still, I think, to a lot of people looks really iffy. And I think to the extent that there's stasis in this situation, that nothing at we're at a point where nothing's really moving in either direction, I think you can attribute some of that stasis just to the fact that the racial dynamics here look very bad.
1: And Joan, let's kind of dig into that too about from your perspective, writing as a feminist and all of this, seeing the ways in which Congress has or hasn't dealt with other accusations of sexual harassment or assault. And I'm thinking in particular of Al Franken, who did step down, but there's been a tremendous amount of blowback from many liberals, many liberal women who believe that he was railroaded.
3: Yeah, I think that's a real problem, Amy. And, you know, we saw with the Franken situation, that was very painful to me. I really admired him, still admire him in many ways for many of the things he's done. He was, for Democrats, for progressives in particular, a great senator. But, you know, when you have six, seven, eight allegations, uh, it just becomes impossible. But I, I would say procedurally, and this is even more true in Virginia, there was no obvious rapid way to deal with the Franken issue he wanted a committee investigation there are oversight committees there are ways it could have happened it would have taken a long time And so while I don't think we should be throwing people in the barrel, to use a phrase, people should have time to defend themselves as well as, you know, the accusers should have time to prepare their stories, you know, their truth as well, there's got to be something that's more rapid and reliable so that both sides, the accuser and the accused, feel that There's some place to go to be heard, and there's some kind of process that is fair. Now, in Virginia, there really isn't even an oversight committee that could oversee the Fairfax allegations. He's asking for an FBI investigation. That's not quite right. They'd have to set up a special commission. I mean, it can be done. I don't want to say it can't be done. But there's – I think that we've lagged, you know, as we've had to deal with this – Increasingly, and it's really great that we're listening to women, we have lagged in setting up the processes for making them heard and also giving their accusers their day to be heard as well. And so the other complication here, and I mean Virginia is just fascinating in so many ways. Um, the legislature only works for two months, so they're leaving session at the end of February. Certainly, things could be extended. There are ways to do this, but they are very untested. People don't know what to do. So that's, I think you're right that we've become very sensitive to this and that's great. But we, all the years that we spent not really caring and looking away, uh, we didn't develop those processes that are fair to both sides.
0: The silver lining to what's happening in Virginia is twofold. The first is that This may end up as kind of a filtering mechanism for politicians that people who are interested in higher office will begin looking in their backgrounds and making sure they don't have something similar. And if they do, it may kind of stay out of the game, which I think would be beneficial. And the second thing is it may make Democrats as a whole just that much more tuned to these ongoing structural issues these ongoing policy problems that directly affect black Americans and, and other non-whites, and not just criminal justice stuff, which is usually what people turn to in thinking about this, but questions of healthcare access, questions of environmental racism, sort of a, a whole, you know, look at any silo of issues and you'll find disproportionate racial impacts. And maybe the effort to get ahead of anything like this or to inoculate oneself against anything like this may end up producing some some good outcomes.
1: This idea that filtering mechanism maybe has been created now by this moment, but it also then suggests that we aren't willing to allow people to grow. And one of your colleagues wrote in The Nation, Joan, that the deeper issue for progressives is whether we believe that people can change. Is that where this focus should be and again it's not just about virginia there're going to be plenty of other people who are seen as progressive who will have yearbook photos or other things that come up that cast them as holding views or positions that we now see as
3: abhorrent what do you do i i would say you've got to earn redemption let's look at their deeds you know the, okay this stuff happened 30 years ago it's hurtful, it's horrible, it's humiliating, it's a symbol of white supremacy, but can we find enough to really hang on to in their policies, in their background, in their dealing with African Americans as as equals, as colleagues, as friends in the give and take of state politics? Have they or or haven't they? Some have more than others. But, you know, I, I think we're still feeling this out. It's really It can be sometimes too easy for, you know, you'll hear various white people not in this situation just be like, oh, I was young and, you know, come on. That's definitely not enough. It's not enough to say I was young. You've just got to show how you've matured on the issues of of
0: race and equality. I think it does depend. It's context dependent, right? So in the case of Ralph Northam, I don't know if Ralph Northam knew this picture existed. I have a feeling he did. I don't have... You know, sharp details of my high school yearbook, but I'm reasonably sure I'd remember if, like, I was in some sort of horrible caricature or if that kind of picture appeared on uh, my yearbook page. But I think this would have been a different situation if during the Democratic primary in 2017 or after his election or at some point before this moment, Ralph Northam had said, I have this thing on my yearbook page. It is very offensive and racist, and I'm sorry that it's there. And kind of directly addressed it head on and sort of made an appeal to growth and changed values, having raised the issue himself. I think forthrightness and directness is really important in these sorts of situations. And when we're evaluating whether or not someone can grow Whether or not we're going to judge their capacity to lead based off of their present actions or their past behavior depends a lot on how they themselves approach and address the issue. And if it's something that they're hiding, if it's something for which they're not being forthright, I'm inclined to say, you know, you can find redemption on your private time. But as a public official, you may have to go. And I think that's also sort of an important thing here, that holding public office is a public trust. And I think it is possible to lose the public's trust without having done something illegal, but something that kind of tears at kind of the very basis for which the trust is given. I, for one, think we as Americans should be even more willing than we are to say to elected officials, you have violated the public's trust and thus you have to step down and you can figure out sort of redemption or growth in a different capacity.
1: It looks as if at this point all three men may end up staying for the full term of office. What kind of message is that going to send?
3: Uh, a difficult one uh- I know that Virginia Democrats are very worried about what this looks like to black voters, to women voters. The Virginia Democrats took 15 seats in the House of Delegates in 2017, and 11 of the winners were women, and many women of color. They're up for re-election in November. How does this affect them? I talked to a Virginia activist today who told me there's a lot of concern that people are vulnerable to this perception, oh, the Democrats didn't move on. A person who's accused of sexual assault in terms of the appeal to women. Oh, the Democrats didn't move on these two guys who admit they dressed in blackface in terms of the appeal to black voters. So I I think there's some concern about will Democrats pay a price at the polls in November when they actually have a chance. They are only two seats down in both the state Senate and the House of Delegates. They're two seats away from taking back the majorities, and that would give Democrats full control of government. So the stakes are high.
0: I don't. I don't think I disagree. Um, it's a tough situation. It's hard to figure out how it will play out for Virginia Democrats over the course of the year. It is still somewhat early in the year, and so come uh, September or October. When campaign season is in full throttle and sort of partisan emotions are high, who knows how this will affect how voters approach things. The most we can say at this point is that for at least Northam and Fairfax, their political careers likely end with these terms. Of course, the Virginia governor is term limited, and so Northam couldn't run for re-election. But oftentimes, former Virginia governors end up making their way to the Senate or some other statewide office. So I think that path is sort of closed for Northam. And Fairfax, likewise, was very clearly being groomed to be the next governor from Virginia. And I think that's likely over as well.
1: Jamel, Joan, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Jamelle Bowie is an opinion columnist for The New York Times. And Joan Walsh is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation. All right, listeners, it's your turn. We asked you if you believe politicians should be held to a higher moral and ethical standard than those who don't hold public office. And what should that standard look like?
0: Hi, this is Amanda calling from North Bangor, New York. I most certainly do believe that politicians should be held by a higher standard. These are the people that are representing us. Do we really want sexual predators or people who are blatantly racist representing us? If you plan on running for office, I feel you should conduct yourself in a respectful and lawful manner. You should just be a good person. And when you've made a mistake, just admit to it and move forward. Hi, it's uh, Bruce Bennett, Plano,
2: Texas. I would feel we would be lucky if our politicians met the moral and ethical standards of normal citizens.
0: Gene, calling from Dallas, Texas. Yes, a country should hold its political leaders to a higher moral standard. A leader represents the essence of the country,
3: and a, a country rarely rises higher than its leaders.
1: Is there a road to redemption, though? For politicians who've been involved in racist incidents specifically?
0: My name is Fred Brinkley. I'm calling from Waxhaw, North Carolina. And of course, a politician can redeem himself, but I don't think he will ever be forgiven. Racism in the South is uh, just very deep. And for someone to, uh, for instance, the governor of Virginia, to dress in blackface is one thing, but to have a Klan member beside him is something that is almost unforgivable in the South.
3: Shannon calling from California, Bay Area. There are so many decent people available to serve in public office. After a racist incident, those voters should at least be asked whether they want a new election. I'm also concerned about the prospect of violent sex criminals continuing to hold public office. J.T. Michaels from rural northwest Lower Michigan. Although I understand the racism of the old blackface, Until recently, I had no idea dressing as Michael Jackson, including face color, would be considered racist. I thought it was because we honored him. Because I am white, I can only trust my black sisters and brothers when they say it is hurtful. So, whether a politician can be redeemed needs to be determined by solid truth and reconciliation style work between the offending politician and members of whichever community of color has been oppressed.
1: I also asked one of my colleagues who thinks and writes about this topic a lot. Rebecca Carroll is a cultural critic and special projects editor at WNYC.
2: So I am for dismantling systemic racism writ large. And so that means accountability on every level from the quote unquote, racially tinged to the racially egregious. And what that accountability looks like for folks who are in positions of office, that means stepping down from that office, identifying and amplifying voices of color and those who are culturally racially conversant to step in in their stead and lead the city or the state or the country, preferably. So in terms of redemption, I mean, I don't know what redemption looks like across the board. For me, it's fine to, I mean, I think Northam is has a reading list of books about race and he's wanting to address racism. It's fine for politicians and great for politicians to want to learn about their racism, but I don't want them doing it while they're working on my dime and trying to protect and govern and enforce laws.
1: A lot of thoughts here as we try to make sense of the events unfolding in Virginia. To continue the conversation, we're on Twitter, at The Takeaway.